Thanks for listening to this edition of the First Take podcast. I'm Simon King, an editor at First Word Pharma Plus, and joining me today as always is my colleague Michael Flanagan. On this week's show, we discuss the somewhat controversial decision by various European countries to pause the use of AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine due to safety concerns. We talk about the formation of a new working group led by the US Federal Trade Commission to more closely review pharmaceutical and biotech M&A activity. We also review new data for an experimental Alzheimer's disease drug being developed by Eli Lilly and discuss the collaboration announced this week between Merck and Gilead focused on long-acting HIV therapies. A number of major European countries announced this week that they have temporarily paused use of the COVID-19 vaccine developed by AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford. Amid reports, it has been linked to an increased risk of rare thrombotic events. Both the World Health Organization and the European Medicines Agency continue to support use of the vaccine, saying its benefits outweigh any safety risks. The decision to pause use of the vaccine has proven controversial. Not only as it occurs against the backdrop of a continued dispute between the European Union, AstraZeneca and the UK government about supply shortfalls, but also as COVID case numbers continue to increase sharply across mainland Europe. I spoke to Anthony Cox, a reader in clinical pharmacy and drug safety at the University of Birmingham and group lead of the Medicine Safety Research Group, about the decision by some countries to suspend use of the vaccine. Anthony, it's Thursday afternoon and we've just heard that the European Medicines Agency has concluded its investigation and deemed the AstraZeneca vaccine to be safe and effective. What's your reaction to this news? What do you think happens next and how would you summarise this week's events in general? So my reaction is I'm not really surprised and I'm very happy that that is the outcome because I found it a little bit concerning about what was happening earlier in the week. And uh, I think it's uh, a good good news story in terms of science and regulatory science around safety issues and drugs. So, um, I mean, the whole story seems to have started with maybe just a few EU states um, stopping using the uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine as a using the citing the precautionary principle based on thrombosis which initially sounded like just vte and i think some of the first countries to withdraw not withdraw but pause the use of the astrazeneca vaccine it was based around cases of thrombosis which to me at the time seemed a little bit premature not to be investigating because that's the whole purpose of collecting these reports but to be taking any firm action on because they didn't seem to be disproportionately higher than what you would expect to happen in the general population. I think the yearly risk is like one in a thousand people will have a thrombosis over the, over a year. So that didn't really concern me, but it, it was concerning that a number of countries were pausing their vaccination programs. And then um, later on, I think by the start of the week, it was becoming clear that some of these cases were more complex and they were linked to thrombocytopenia and and, and causing a cerebral vein thrombosis. So this very rare, um, naturally occurring uh, 
issue where you have a sinus vein thrombosis, so it's, it's CSVT. And now that Norway, Norway seems to have some cases, and then Germany, um, the Paul Ehrlich Institute um, produced a report um, with a number of cases, I think seven, seven rare thrombosis cases that weren't of general VTE, six of which were CSVT, and I think three of which of the patients had died. And obviously that's a bit of a red flag because that, that seems, that's quite a rare naturally occurring event and they had seven of them and Norway have had three. And in Norway as well, they, they also have the issue that they don't really have much COVID, they've not had many COVID deaths. So um, they've got a different sort of risk benefit calculation to make. So. Yes, so they pulled that and then sent that off to EMA. Now, then there's been a lot of nonsense about um, whether this was politically not motivated. I don't for one minute think that any single scientific committee um, had a political motivation at all. I, I kind of completely believe that in good faith, these committees are making decisions based on what they think is the best uh, science. And, and uh, what I do think though, is that there's perhaps some sort of, um, cascade of bad decision making has happened as one um, national regulator or health service has paused the vaccination program the next one feels that they have to to be seen to be doing the best things in terms of safety for their population so I think that may have happened like some sort of informational cascade well they're doing it so we must do it and err on the side of caution and people have explicitly used things like err on the side of caution and this might be a fuss over nothing but we better do it because it's safe and I think there's some real dangers in doing that because I think it's it's led to a lot of anxiety about the vaccine I think if they just said we've got these cases of, of thromboembolism and we've got these cases of CSVT we're going to refer them up to the European Medicines Agency to review and they'll do a rapid review look at the case the clinical cases set up observational studies etc and make a decision I think that might have reassured um, patients or the population who were going to receive the vaccine and then we could, we could have moved on then and, and uh, now you're trying to in the countries where they have paused they're now saying right we're going to restart and I think that's a much difficult sell it's much, much more difficult sell to people who might be nervous about vaccination because it sort of suggests that you're sort of changing your mind um, about the safety but actually they haven't the committees that referred it up to the EMA and did pause the vaccination did say that they they weren't sure it was a real effect. So uh, yeah, it, to me, it, that seems a bad decision. And based on what I know about regulatory science and decision-making, I was fully expecting the MHRA, for example, and EMA to come out with the decisions they did and in fact predicted the EMA decision, um, I think yesterday or maybe two days ago. And I'm pleased to say that it's come out about the same. So yeah, I think now we've got the MHRA and EMA sort of in regulatory step both saying the vaccination campaign can continue that the balance of harms versus benefits is clearly in the benefits side um and even even down to the warnings that they're going to give clinicians and patients about uh, headaches and bruising and the same decision making process around observational studies so i'm um and it's yeah it's important to note that EMA did mention they've been speaking to other regulatory agencies and that included the MHRA so even though we have left um Europe and uh, EMA uh, there's clearly very close relationships still between them which is understandable given that the UK had EMA based within it um until until quite recently so i i think it's um 
I think this this incident, although it might be seen as a, a bit of a debacle and and uh, a massive vaccine scare, I'm, I'm not sure it does. I think, in fact, it's it shows that the system works in that we've picked things up via the uh, pharmacovigilance system, such as the yellow card scheme and similar schemes throughout the European continent. Uh, I think it's shown that we can make decisions based on that data, and I think it's shown that we can communicate rare events to the public that may or may not be linked to the vaccine and also make changes to product licensing that perhaps um, um, will help us mitigate any ill effects if there are rare cases that do occur. So I think overall, although it's been like a, a mad week, I think it's shown that the system works. Well, I guess the question now is what happens next, isn't it? Is But it, it would be really unsurprising. I mean, it would be really surprising, wouldn't it, if sort of the different countries that have paused their vaccination programs didn't now re you know didn't restart wouldn't it that would be a bit of an odd yeah it, i think it would be odd so although some of the countries like norway aren't in the european union they are part of ema through the through efta and the eea so i would find it surprising if any country that was in the eu and covered by ema would ignore their advice um i mean they're probably legally within their rights they can do that um but i think it then fundamentally starts making you wonder well what what's the purpose of the european medicines agency if the european states aren't going to listen to their advice and that was my stance when they were making the decisions to pause the vaccination program i, I thought well if you're going to pull your your um your pharmacovigilance out into a, a supranational body like EMA, then, well, then do it. Don't don't make individual decisions at a local level um, when you don't know that it's a true thing. Uh, yeah, I, th I think what 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 will happen now is that that everyone will restart vaccinating. Uh, we may have took a hit on public confidence in some countries over others. I, I, I concerns about. France in particular and some of the others that have got a cultural vaccination hesitancy problem. Um, I think we'll probably get more cases coming in because there's now notoriety bias and people are aware of this issue and we'll be looking for it more closely and we'll be then asking patients, have you had the vaccine? And then we'll get more reports coming in. I think that's something we're going to have to watch for. On Tuesday, the US Federal Trade Commission announced the formation of a working group in collaboration with competition regulators in the EU, UK and Canada to update how they review buyouts in the pharmaceutical industry amid concerns that such deals may drive up drug prices and stifle innovation. Rebecca Kelly Slaughter, acting chair of the FTC, said, we intend to take an aggressive approach to tackling anti-competitive pharmaceutical mergers. Slaughter noted that given the high volume of pharmaceutical mergers in recent years, amid skyrocketing, skyrocketing drug prices and ongoing concerns about anti-competitive conduct in the industry, it is imperative that we rethink our approach. Furthermore, in a Twitter thread on Tuesday, Slaughter suggested that the FTC's long-standing practice with respect to deals in the pharma industry has been too narrow, focusing mainly on the angle of product and pipeline overlap between merging parties something she says does not capture all the effects of these deals. The FTC also said that the impact of pharma mergers was not just about the respective size of the two companies, 
suggesting that smaller acquisitions could also be scrutinized more closely going forward. Michael, what do you make of the announcement? And are you kind of surprised at the FTC's actions? That's certainly interesting. You know, it, it, um, I guess you could say it's just like a partisan thing where the Democrats are sort of taking over and um, they've typically been, uh, or at least you could say the Republicans have been the party that sort of are more laissez-faire on uh, business here in the U.S. So maybe it's just sort of a, an opening salvo in a sense. Um, but yeah, it seems like it's sort of coming out of the out of the blue here. Um, obviously, there's a lot of deals that have recently gone through that, um, you know, might have been right in the crosshairs. You know, BMS and Celgene uh, and AbbVie and Allergan are some very big deals that went through that obviously, you know, if they were looked at a lot closer, a lot more closely, um, perhaps they could have found something to uh, disrupt the uh, the deal. So it's it's interesting. I don't I don't really know what to make of it, to be honest. So what are you, what about uh, from your you know vantage point on the other side of the uh, the Atlantic? Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's at this point it seems very much uh, you know we're we're kind of in unknown territory, aren't we? You know that literally the FTC has kind of laid out you know, the groundwork for, for what they want to do going forward. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the BMS and the Celgene and the Abvi-Allegan um, deals that have obviously happened in the last few years because um, uh, Rebecca Kelly Slaughter, she, she actually mentioned those specifically uh, as, as acquisitions that she kind of, you know, I think she was inferring, you know, should have maybe been kind of investigated uh, more closely than they were at the time. Um but I think, yeah, you're right. I think we're definitely in, in watch and wait territory. I mean, I, I guess the the one thing I would say is that, you know, maybe we had a bit of a clue that this was coming. Um, obviously, Roche's acquisition of Spark Therapeutics um, a couple of years ago was very, very protracted. Um, and it seemed to be, uh, it seemed to be scrutinized because there was a concern that Spark's haemophilia a gene therapy was maybe uh, at risk of being deprioritized, which would benefit um, Roche's um, competing drug Hemlibra. But that, that obviously that deal went through in the end. Um, but I, I, it's obviously um, it, it's obviously uh, you know uh, come out of the blue for those people hoping and expecting um, you know a spate of uh, M and A in twenty twenty one. Obviously, with you know some impact from the pandemic last year on M and A activity, so I think definitely something to watch closely. I think one one last point, though, you know, it's a it's a a point that you know has been talked about sort of ad nauseum over the years and perhaps even decades of the pharmaceutical industry. But you know, there's been a lot of people who suggest that these mega mergers, you know, you mentioned BMS and Celgene, AbbVie and Allergan. There's people that that I think, in fact, Merck's CEO Ken Fraser recently said it. Like, it's questionable whether you actually, you know, derive value from these huge deals like that, and especially innovation. I mean, what what innovation are you actually creating with that? So, you know, while it's it's sort of something that to keep in mind and sort of suggest that okay, like you know, regulators and bureaucrats have their eye on the industry. At the same time, it it's not it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing for for anyone other than maybe you know, the bankers and people making money on deals.
Last weekend, Eli Lilly shared more details from its much-anticipated Phase 2 Trailblazer trial, testing its modified beta-amyloid-targeting antibody donanumab in patients with early symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. Preliminary data that was announced in January had showed that the drug achieved the primary endpoint of significantly slowing decline on the integrated Alzheimer's disease rating scale, a composite measure of cognition and daily function. Michael, I know you've been following um, development of Donanumab closely in recent months. What were your key takeaways from the new data and the disclosures made by Eli Lilly? I know, for example, that they're changing the design of a later stage study based on these results, aren't they? Yeah, you know, the, uh, the new endpoint that they're going to use going forward in, in the, the um, next study is certainly interesting and obviously caught a lot of, you know, it attracted a lot of attention. I think what, you know, first caught my eye, though, was the uh, investors' reaction to the data, which I think the data, it seems to be, you know, the consensus among at least analysts that, you know, the data was about what you would expect. It was good, not great. Um, it seems like some maybe uber bullish investors must have been thinking that this was going to be a home run. It certainly wasn't a home run. And it, it, it seems as though, you know, it's pretty clear that they're probably not going to be able to file on the data, which apparently some people thought might be a, you know, an outside possibility. So that was the really the biggest question that was answered by this, um, you know, readout. It's like, okay, we're not going to be able to file on this most likely. The next question then was, okay, so then where do we go from here? Um, the the data itself, I think the 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 takeaway message was like every, all the measures, all the endpoints, they were all going in the right direction. So obviously that's a good thing. Um, some of them didn't reach statistical significance. Some did, some, you know, hit it at uh, significance at certain time points and not others. Um, but they're all sort of heading in the right direction. So that was the message that Eli Lilly clearly wanted to get across. So, you know, I think that's a good thing for Lilly. It's a good thing for, you know, the beta amyloid hypothesis and, and that sort of thing. There's there's obviously questions as well because there's, you know, there's a lack of correlation between like plaque clearing and cognitive benefit at a patient level, individual patient level. So, you know, it just raises questions of like, is this, are these antibodies doing, you know, what we need to do to, to treat Alzheimer's? It's, you know, it's something to, to keep uh, an eye on, obviously. But, um, you know, moving forward, they, they're going to use this new endpoint for the ongoing phase two, well, it was a phase two uh, Trailblazer Alls 2 trial. They're, so they're modifying that study. They're turning it into a phase three trial. They're expanding it, and they're using this, um, a different endpoint than the one, than the CDR sum of boxes that FDA sort of traditionally prefers. Um, they're using a modified composite that looks at different, you know, cognitive and functional measures. So it's, it's just a different endpoint. They think it'll be, um, you know, better, more accurate uh, for what the the drug is doing. Obviously, that raises risk, though. Uh, so this is a this is an endpoint that Donanumab hit in this phase two trial and a relatively small phase two trial at that. So that's impressive and sort of suggests it's doing something. But at the same time, the endpoint itself um, has not been you know validated. hasn't been accepted by FDA. Uh, so you know it, it raises. I would say it lowers the clinical risk. Since denanomab seemingly, you know, hasn't already shown an effect on this endpoint, but it raises the regulatory risk because, 
you know, FDA may not end up uh, accepting the endpoint. So um, it's really an interesting situation. And I think all things considered, it seems like a positive step in the right direction, but obviously not uh, a big home run for Dananamab and uh, Eli Lilly. Excellent. We've actually got, um, we've been surveying um, some physicians this week. We're going to publish the results um, tomorrow or next week. Um, this is, we're, we're, position, uh, we're surveying um, US um, neurologists and psychiatrists who are kind of specialists in the treatment of Alzheimer's or, or certainly a are routinely treating patients with Alzheimer's. I mean, in terms of the the data that was presented last weekend, um, you know, I think about half. I think we surveyed about fifty so far, and I think about half of those physicians kind of view the data as as moderately compelling, which I think you know is 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 probably kind of um, echoing you know the the feedback that you've got that this is a step in the right direction. I think what's kind of interesting, though, is that in terms of that new um, endpoint that's going to be used, the integrated Alzheimer's disease rating scale, only 30% of the um, the physicians that we, we polled described themselves as being very familiar or extremely familiar um, with that with that scale so I, I, yeah i think it is going to be interesting and obviously it's 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 a com it's a combination of our regulators going to accept it um but is it going to be you know assuming the data are positive is it going to be data that resonates um you know with treating physicians i guess you know such is the level of unmet need in alzheimer's that you know positive data in a phase three study would be um you know, would be warmly uh, greeted, um, regardless of endpoint. And it'll sell itself, basically, <laughs> at that point. As long as something gets approved in Alzheimer's, people will probably lap it up, um, as they have done with small molecules that are, you know, only modestly effective and, and offer all sorts of side effects. So, yeah, I think, I think if you get it across the line, and I think that's what Eli Lilly is thinking, get it across the regulatory finish line and... Um, that's the big problem, you know, that's the big stumbling block. Once you can do that, doctors and, and patients will come get it, I think. Okay, so next we got a deal between Gilead and Merck that's pretty interesting. So the, the deal, um, or the partners announced on Monday that they're going to co-develop a, a combination of two experimental medicines that they are um, developing separately, um, and they're going to do this to make it a, a long-acting treatment for HIV. So specifically, the two-drug regimen will bring together Gilead's capsid inhibitor, lenacapavir, with Merck's nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor, isleteravir, uh, both of which are already in late-stage development separately. Now, the, com the companies noted that while a daily single-tablet regimens are you know, they're already available for patients with HIV. Options that would allow for less frequent oral dosing or infrequent injections rather than daily dosing have the potential to address preference considerations as well as issues associated with adherence and privacy. So according to Gilead and Merck, both these agents have long half-lives, have demonstrated activity at low doses in clinical testing, which supports using them in combination as long-acting oral and potentially injectable formulations. 
The first clinical studies of the oral combo are slated to begin in the second half, with Gilead CEO Daniel O'Day suggesting that a product could be approved as early as 2025, that'd be an oral, and then 2027 for an injectable. So, Simon, it looks like the momentum for long-acting HIV therapies is poised to uh, accelerate considerably here, no? Yeah, I think so, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, obviously, uh, you know, we've been aware and, and experts in the field have been aware of, um, you know, development efforts by by the leading HIV players to, to, to develop long-acting therapies and preventative therapies. But it really feels that with this deal, um, there is kind of greater momentum. Um, you know, reading what analysts had to say on the matter this week, um, it was interesting that a few analyst notes I read suggested, you know, that they were aware that a deal of this ilk, maybe between two companies like Gilead and Merck, was perhaps on the cards for some time um, and could potentially have been, um, you know, moved forward by the approval of uh, Vive Healthcare's uh, Cabanuva, uh, which is a once monthly um, injectable therapy, which was approved by the FDA in January. Um, you know, and I, I think, you know, Cabanuva is, is, is kind of recognized by, by analysts as a, as a kind of an innovative product, but maybe hasn't been given the, the, the credit that it deserves in terms of how it may move the market forward. Um, we actually ran um, one of our position view polls um, to HIV specialists last month, and we got you know incredibly positive feedback about this drug um, in terms of its level of innovation, in terms of um, how it could sort of change the treatment paradigm for HIV patients. You know, a, a big caveat um, you know, is that, um, and I think I'm, I'm speaking for, for HIV treatments in general, I don't think there's a, a huge scope for many patients to be switched from one regimen to the other at the moment, um, unless it's absolutely necessary because of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but then it was interesting to see, um, I believe it was uh, analysts at Jefferies this week had spoken to a key opinion leader who had provided them with very, very similar feedback, very effusive feedback about Cabinuva. Um, and I think he was sort of suggesting that he felt that actually up to about a third of patients um, currently being treating, treated with sort of oral daily you know, therapies uh, would be candidates for this drug. And you know, and have sort of, uh, you know, suggested an interest in it. So it seems that we've had over a very sort of short space of just a, a matter of, of months uh, with that approval and now with this deal that, that suddenly, um, you know, that, that, that the future market for long-acting HIV therapies is potentially going to be a bit more substantial than maybe maybe people were expecting. Yeah, I know there. You know, the the big question I think was whether there was going to be resistance mutations that would come through. That was, you know, the big question from the clinician side when all these, especially when V V was talking about the, you know, these long acting combinations. So I guess basically what what this sort of suggests from a you know a big picture perspective is that you know clinicians are getting a lot more comfortable with the the possibility of these long acting you know drugs and um, 
yeah, and, and obviously the there's it's not just long acting treatment, but obviously prep as well as another aspect that probably will come into this at some point. But maybe that's a little ways down the road at this point. Uh, but a lot of a lot of innovation. I think the other the other sort of angle with this um, this deal between Gilead and Merck is that it it, it kind of felt um, from a kind of an investor perspective like it was a real you know win win um, situation. Um, I think um, I think people have maybe been recognizing that um, you know the 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 competition from Vive um, you know could be more substantial, and so I think this kind of shores up. Um, you know, Gilead's HIV uh, portfolio in the long term, you know, gives it more optionality. Um, you know, it's really seen as the bedrock of the company's revenue stream. Gilead's obviously, you know, there's been lots and lots of, you know, discussion around their, their efforts to move into oncology, which are kind of, you know, is kind of happening uh, with, with various levels of success, but there's been lots of, you know, acquisition dollars spent on that. So I think it's kind of shored up the HIV portfolio. And obviously, from, from Merck's perspective, you know, the, the, the kind of concern has been that, um, you know, the company's been too focused on Keytruda. And I think suddenly um, there's a, another potential revenue stream, um, you know, not too far in, in, in the future. So I think it's a positive for both companies. Yeah, I think from Vive's perspective, it's probably not exactly a positive, but uh, it does suggest that uh, you know these other companies, Gilead in particular, they mu they must hear the footsteps. <laughs> you know, it sort of validates what the what Vive's been doing, that they're willing to um, decide to set apart, you know, set aside their differences, that being Gilead and Merck, and uh, work together in in this to to come at them. Um, so I guess in the tacit validation for Vive too. <laughs>